Please take your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 24. We're going to uh, complete the message that we started on concerning the encounter with Jesus, with his disciples who are on the road to Emmaus. It's a beautiful chapter, a wonderful story of Jesus Christ communing with his disciples. I'm sure you remember the story quite well. It was the day of the crucifixion. I'm sorry, the day of the resurrection. And uh, all of the disciples were very disappointed, very saddened. Uh, none of them really believed in the resurrection. It's an amazing story to read. They were all dejected. These two disciples probably lived in Emmaus, seven miles away from Jerusalem, was headed home. Jesus joined them, listened to their conversation. They were carrying on quite a involved, animated type of discussion concerning the events. And Jesus uh, worked it so that they could not recognize him. We don't know exactly what he did. A lot of people th thought that he might have changed his appearance. But there's no indication of that. In fact, it says that he caused their eyes to be beholden, is the King James. And so he did something with the eyes, not his appearance, uh, to prevent them from recognizing who he was. Um, and the climax of the story came when Jesus chided them, rebuked them for not understanding the Old Testament scriptures. Because the Old Testament scriptures clearly showed that the Messiah would come, but he would suffer these things, he would die and be raised again. And the words that Jesus uses in Luke 24 is quite arresting. Verse 25, he says, he said to them, O foolish men. Some people believe that Cleophas was accompanied by his wife, but if we believe the text and the uh, unless he was married, dare I say it? I'd better not say that. But it seems that there were two men rather than a man and a woman. Oh, foolish men, notice this phrase, slow of heart. Slow of heart to believe. Slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets has spoken. You see, he could say that to these Jewish individuals because the Jewish people, especially the men, boasted in their knowledge of the Old Testament. They were taught well. They should have known, but they were slow of heart to believe. So it appears that they read the text, but didn't want to believe it. That's like many of us today. We read the text, but we don't believe it. Or we say we believe it, but we don't, because we don't act it out. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? This is what we call divine necessity. It had to happen. Was it not necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one? To suffer these things 
and to enter in to glory. Suffering, this is Messiah, then glory. The implication is that the reign, his reign will come after that. Not between. Suffers, be glorified, then the reign. But they did not want to believe that. They wanted the rain to come immediately. But now, the disciples, after Jesus spoke to them, Scripture says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he expounded to them. That's the real word there. Not merely explained, but expounded to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He expounded to them all the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. And as they went back and they were meditating and reflecting on what happened, this is what they said in verse 32. Then said, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us? One translation says, Did not, was not our heart set on fire? While he was speaking to us, while he was expounding the scripture to us. So I want you to see the contrast. First, they're slow to, re, to, to believe with the reading in scriptures, but then the Savior comes and he expounds the scriptures. And he said, while he was doing that, their heart was set aflame. Because they saw Jesus in the Old Testament. That's why I call this message the cause of divine heartburn. The cause of divine heartburn. What is it? To see Jesus in the Old Testament. In fact, we could say to see Jesus in Scripture. But here it has to do with seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. In John chapter 5, Jesus spoke about the scriptures that we now call the Old Testament. This is what he says. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet, you refuse to come. Heart slow to believe. You refuse to come to me to have life. You go to the scriptures looking for the way to eternal life, but yet you miss me. And I'm the one who gives it. How can it be? Slow of heart to believe. Something was happening in their heart. What was happening? To give them this fire, this glow. God was revealing 
Jesus Christ to them. That's what was happening. While the scripture was being expounded by the one whom the scriptures write about. God himself was at work. And friends, listen. This is what must happen for us to believe the scriptures and to see Jesus. God has to do a work in our hearts. We have to give him time for that. It was a seven mile walk. For these two disciples. The problem with us when we go to the scriptures. We don't want to take time. All we want to do is take the little verse. We don't take time for God to reveal Christ to us. Slow to believe. Because even if you read it. It doesn't sink in. Because the one who illuminates our mind doesn't have time to do it. You remember Peter? And Jesus said, whom do men say that I am? You're John, you're Elijah, you're this, you're that prophet, you're this one. Who do you say that I am? Peter Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed art thou, Simon Peter, flesh and blood. Has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The only way we can learn anything spiritual is by allowing God himself to do it. In the Gospel of John, John says we have an anointing of the Holy Spirit. We need no one to teach us. An anointing. But we need to take time to listen. To let him speak to us. Jesus said that these scriptures, the Old Testament, testify about me. In other words, he is in the Old Testament. Therefore, we must look for him as we study it. We must search for him as we study it. The whole Bible, in fact, is about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can be found in each and every book. So when we read the book, if we don't see Jesus, something is wrong with our hearts. That's why we're slow to believe. But when we go to the Bible, Lord, give me something for today. What's that? How to keep out of trouble, how to make money, how not to get sick, all that stuff. But not let me see Jesus. Our hearts will only burn within us if we see Jesus in the scriptures. So what I want to do tonight as the beginning, and this is sort of an introduction to some things I'll do before, is to take a look at the Old Testament. 
and to see how Jesus is revealed in the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is made up of 39 books, as you all know. 17 are historical, five are poetic, and 17 are prophetic. Someone has determined that the history portion of the Bible composes about 40, 47%. The poetic portions compose 23%. The remaining 31% is devoted to prophecy. But here's the point. They all speak about Jesus Christ. The poets, the prophets, the historians, they all speak about Jesus Christ. Let's take a quick look then at how the different Old Testament books see Jesus. Now, this is just one perspective. There are many others. You could add to it. I could add to it. But just look at it. I just want to give you feel and as an introduction to what we'll be doing in a series as we go on, Lord willing, in the months ahead. In Genesis, Jesus is seen as the creator. He's the seed of the woman. He's a lamb provided. That's Genesis. And that's just the beginning. You go through the entire book of Jesus, you will see Jesus, uh, uh, the book of Genesis, you will see Jesus again and again and again and again. Jesus is in the book of Genesis. You go to Exodus, he's the Lamb of God, and specifically the Passover Lamb. Paul says that Jesus, what? Our Passover. He's the rock that was smitten. That rock is Jesus. That's in the book of Exodus. In Leviticus, I only have heard that Jesus is the high priest as a type. He's seen as a type. But Jesus is also seen as a sacrifice, especially the atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. That's Jesus. Jesus is the sweet-smelling, the, the, the thanksgiving sacrifice. He is all of the sacrifices. Jesus. He's the priest as well. In Numbers, Jesus is the star of Jacob. And that has a lot of implications, being the star of Jacob. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is the prophet like Moses. But he's the prophet who's greater than Moses. That's what Jesus tells us. Greater than Moses is here. In Joshua, Jesus is the captain of the Lord of hosts. In Judges, Jesus is the messenger of Jehovah. This is an interesting one. He's called the angel of Jehovah again and again and again. That's why some people say that because he's an angel, then he's a creature. I don't know. Simply means he's a messenger of God, of Jehovah. In fact, this term, an angel of the Lord for Jesus, is mentioned again and again. And Jesus is seen in many, uh, for, uh, in many manifestations as the angel of the Lord. We'll be looking at that in days to come, Lord willing. In Ruth, 
And this is a beautiful story. He's a kinsman redeemer. Beautiful story. Have I ever preached on Ruth here? I think it's time to preach on Ruth. Beautiful story, the story of Ruth. And you know, it is the only book. No, not Esther. I'm getting these ladies mixed up. I'll come to Esther, Esther in a moment. Ruth, Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, Jesus is the Lord and the seed of David. He's both of David and he's over David. He's the Lord, he's David's Lord, he's David's seed. This is also spoke, spoken about in the book of in Psalms. In Kings and Chronicles, Jesus is the king of kings, the king over kings. In Ezra and Nehemiah, Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. In Esther, Jesus is an intercessor. They were praying for deliverance. The name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther at all, but the presence of Jesus is there as the one who intercedes. In Job, Jesus is the risen Redeemer. Job is the first one who really highlights on the fact that the Redeemer will be raised. The risen Redeemer. In Psalms, Jesus is the Son of God. Of course, there are many others in the Psalm, not only the Son of God, but He's the Word. His wisdom and so on. Well, that's in, in, in Proverbs. Jesus is wisdom in the book of Proverbs. You want to read a beautiful description of Jesus Christ. I think it's the second proverb, I believe, Proverbs chapter 2 or 3, where wisdom is described. We have a beautiful description of Jesus Christ. Read it. Your heart may be caught afire when you see Jesus in the Proverbs. In Ecclesiastes, Jesus is above the sun. You see, he was looking at things under the sun. Jesus is above the sun. Jesus is the one who writes the laws that he says we must obey and so on. In the Song of Solomon, what a book that is. Jesus is all the altogether lovely one. Now he's more than that. But he's seen as a lover. Now of course, when we see Jesus in that, and I remember the book is not written especially to show him only as that, because it has something to do with husband and wife as well. But Jesus is seen as the lover of our souls. In Isaiah, Jesus is a suffering servant in the first part, and in the last part, he's the glorified Savior. In fact, Isaiah is divided in such a way that the description of Jesus Christ in the first 30 chapters or so, 31 chapters, is so different from how he's described in the following 30 chapters or so that many people believe that the book is written by two people because one focuses on his suffering the other focuses on his glory in jeremiah jesus is the lord our righteousness in lamentations jesus is the man of sorrows but he's a faithful one as well great is thy faithfulness lamentations in Ezekiel, Jesus is the prince and a priest. He's the prince and a peace and a priest. In Daniel, Jesus is the Messiah who was cut off. His crucifixion is focused upon and mentioned. But he's also 
the ruler of the world. He's the one who places rulers up and takes them down. In Hosea, Jesus is willing and able to save the backslider. This is a beautiful picture about Hosea. Another beautiful picture of the love and the mercy and the grace of God going after the sinner, regardless of what the sinner has done. Hosea in Joel, Jesus utters his voice and he shakes the earth. The power of Jesus Christ, the omnipotence of Jesus Christ, the fact that he is creator of the earth, the world. In Amos, Jesus reproves and restores. In Obadiah, Jesus is Lord of his kingdom. In Jonah, Jesus is the risen prophet. In Micah, Jesus is the ruler who was born in Bethlehem, that little small place that nothing good comes out of. Nahum, in Nahum, Jesus is the bearer of good tidings. In Habakkuk, Jesus is the Holy One with the scars of Calvary on him already. In Zephaniah, Jesus is the saving Lord in their midst. In Haggai, Jesus is the desire of all the nations. In Zechariah, Jesus is the king who is meek and lowly. In Malachi, Jesus is the son of righteousness. The Old Testament is filled with Jesus Christ. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Has your heart been put aflame, caught afire, because you've seen Jesus in the Old Testament? That's what happened to these disciples. Their hearts were set aflame. Because they saw Jesus. And that's what we have to pray for and search for when we go to the scriptures to see Jesus. In the Old Testament, here's another way of looking at it. In the Old Testament, Christ is concealed. In the New Testament, Christ is revealed. In the Old Testament, Christ is anticipated. In the New Testament, he is acknowledged. In the Old Testament, Christ is contained. In the New Testament, he is explained or expounded. In the Old Testament, Jesus is promised. In the New Testament, Jesus is proclaimed. In the Old Testament, Jesus is pictured. In the New Testament, he is present. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the New, that prediction is fulfilled. Jesus Christ is in the Old Testament. And our hearts should burn as we see him there, should be set afire. In the Old Testament, they look at the sections. In the law, that's the foundations for Christ. The Gospels. I'm sorry, the, the, the five books of Moses, the law, the foundation for Christ. Section that we call history is preparation for Christ. Tells the story of all of the families related. The poetry is the aspiration for Christ. The heart's desire, the prayers. The poetry. 
the prophecy, we have the expectation of Jesus Christ. Beloved, the Old Testament is filled with Jesus Christ. Have you seen him? Has your heart burned within you? As you read the Psalms, as you read history, the families from whom he came, the book of Genesis, book of origins to beginnings, you see Jesus. Now there's a way of looking at scripture when we go to the Old Testament to see Jesus. We could look for Jesus in types. A type is when we look for similarities of the individual with the person of Jesus Christ. Now when we look for types, we have to be careful we're not looking for a complete um, description in every detail, but just certain similarities. Let me just go through a couple with you right now. Take a look at Adam, for instance. Adam was the first person in creation. Christ, in his resurrection, is the first person in a new creation. Adam was called the Son of God. Christ is the Son of God, and is called that as well. Adam was God's administrator or ruler. God gave him that position. Christ is God's anointed king. Adam was head of the race. Jesus Christ is head of the new creation the new race. Adam's actions brought consequences to his children, causing them to inherit sin and death, according to Genesis 3. The actions of Christ, on the other hand, brought consequences to God's children, causing them to inherit righteousness and life. Adam joined Eve and rebelled against God. Christ redeemed his bride by obeying God. So you see, as you look at types, you see comparisons as well as contrasts. Adam's shame required the death of an animal to cover that shame. Christ was shamed as well. He was stripped and slain to cover our shame. Instead of closeness to God, we experience isolation and loneliness because of Adam's sin. Instead of love and care for each other, we experience violence and hatred because of Adam's sin. But through Christ's redemptive action, we can experience true life, a close relationship with God and his love and care for others. We can see Christ in the Old Testament. We can see him in Adam. But then look also at Abraham. God chose Abraham and commanded him to leave his home and travel to an unknown place. By the way, it's a wonderful story. If you read Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was being stoned, or before he was stoned, he gave the whole history of the, of the race, of the Jewish race. And he said that the God of glory appeared to Abraham. Some people get the idea that the first time 
Adam, I'm sorry, Abraham had any dealings with God is when God said, Abraham, get up and go. But that's not true. God demonstrated his glory to Abraham. The God of glory. It means that God manifested, God demonstrated his glory, who he was to Abraham. And so when God told Abraham to go, he knew who he was listening to. He didn't go out on blind faith. Yes, he didn't know exactly where he was going, but he knew who told him to go. The God of glory. So God chose him and commanded him to leave his home and travel to an unknown place. God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation and that Sarah, his wife, would give him a son. To this son, God would bless all the nations. When they were elderly, of course, Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, the son of the promise. You see, so whenever you read about Abraham, Isaac, and so on, you've got to think about Jesus Christ. Because the only reason I come on the scene was to be the lineage, the line of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So you should never think about Abraham without thinking about Jesus Christ. You should not think about Isaac without thinking about Jesus Christ. You shouldn't even think of Jacob without thinking of Jesus Christ. Abraham is called the father of the faith in Genesis 15 and Romans 4. Christ in Hebrews 12 is the author and perfecter of faith. Abraham is willing to sacrifice his only son, and Isaac was ready to do what his father said. You know the story in Genesis 22. God the Father was willing to sacrifice his only son also. And Jesus is ready to do what his father said. A body thou hast prepared for me, I come to do thy will, O God. He was willing to be placed on the altar the same way Isaac was. By the way, Isaac is another wonderful type of Jesus Christ. Abraham's faith allowed him to trust that God would keep his word, even if it meant raising Isaac from the dead. As Abraham's faith allowed him to look forward to Jesus' own resurrection with hope, we can now look backwards to the same resurrection that gives us hope of our own resurrection. Isaac is a beautiful illustration of Jesus Christ dying for us. Abraham's sacrifice took place on Mount Moriah, and the ram was substituted for Isaac. Christ was sacrificed on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and he is the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ. Whenever you read the story of Isaac, and you read about that ram being caught in the thicket, you've got to think about Jesus Christ, or else you've missed it. All you've got is history. But if you see Jesus, your heart will burn within you. Your heart will burn within you. Abraham's son Isaac was the child of the promise. The book of Hebrews connected Isaac to the idea of resurrection. God's son Jesus is a child of promise also. And he was also resurrected. In Isaac's birth, all nations would be blessed in Jesus Christ. All nations are blessed. And so we cannot read, we should not read the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all of them. We should not without seeing Jesus Christ. And if we teach the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to our children without teaching them about Jesus Christ, we've missed it. 
We've missed it. You've got history. But when you see Jesus, your hearts will burn within them. The scriptures were not just given to us to teach us history. It was to teach us about Jesus Christ. Not just to reveal things that were done to families, but rather to reveal the person of Jesus Christ. You want to see a greater lover than the one that's presented in Hosea? But look at the story. The story is so horrid. Because that's what sin does. Sin brings about horrible things in our lives. And we do awful things. But God is there. Jesus Christ is right there waiting for us to forgive us and to receive us back into fellowship if we would just turn. Melchizedek. Remember the story after Abraham came back from fighting enemy armies, any enemy armies to free Lot. Lot was his nephew. Melchizedek, the king of peace, the king of Salem. That was the name of Jerusalem at that time. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, met him on the road with a gift of bread and wine. Bread and wine. Do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus? Abraham recognized him as a fellow believer and a priest of the true God by giving to him one-tenth of his earnings, which was the king's share at that time. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He is the righteous one. It's amazing, you know, Melchizedek. So much about Jesus Christ is contained in the story of Melchizedek. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, the author actually uses our knowledge of Melchizedek as a measure of our growth in Christ. He said, I want to tell you more about this man, about Melchizedek, but you, you can't bear it. That's what he says. Read it. You're too dull of hearing. To use the words in our context, your heart is too slow to believe. People couldn't receive the information concerning Melchizedek because their hearts were dull. That's the people he said, you should be teachers now. But yet, you got to go way back and teach you over again the fundamentals, the elementary things. Melchizedek, a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Melchizedek was king of Salem. The word Salem, of course, means peace. Jesus Christ is our prince of peace. And he is, of course, the rightful king of Jerusalem, not only for a short time, but forever. So Melchizedek was just a faint picture of the true Jesus Christ, the king of kings, the king of of righteousness, the king of peace, the prince of peace. Melchizedek was also a priest of God, the God most high. Before Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, that's what Melchizedek was before this priestly order came on. 
As you remember, Aaron after this and his sons were ordained to be the priestly family in Israel. But before that happened, Aaron was the one who represented the priesthood. Christ's high priesthood precedes and is superior to any other priesthood. Especially the priesthood of Aaron and of Melchizedek and Jen. He is even superior to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is our high priest. And he goes far beyond either Melchizedek or Aaron. The Old Testament priests offered blessings for God's people. As high priest, Jesus blesses God's people with every spiritual blessing. Melchizedek blesses Abraham on God's behalf. Christ blesses us, Abraham's spiritual children, on his own. Because he is the source of all blessings. And he's blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And so as we go through scripture, we go person after person, even events. The Passover is a picture of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of those who come under his blood. The Exodus is a picture of the great redemption of Jesus Christ. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Exodus is always used as a powerful demonstration of God's redemption. So when you read and you study about the Exodus and miss Jesus Christ, your heart will never burn within you because you've missed Jesus Christ. When you study, please study to see Jesus. One more, Joshua. Joshua, whose name was really Hosea, was one of the 12 spies that Moses sent to explore the land of Canaan. Only he and Caleb, as you remember, encouraged the people to trust God and take possession of the land of Canaan, which God promised them. You know the story. When Moses died, Joshua became the leader who brought Israel into the land of Canaan. Now that's a beautiful picture already. Joshua leading the people into the land, the promised land. If you read about Joshua and don't see Jesus, you've missed it. Because he's the one who brings us into the promised land. Joshua's name is actually the same name as Jesus. Jeshua or Yeshua for short. It means the salvation of God or the Lord saves. Jesus' name is the Greek form of the same name. Like Joshua, Jesus led his people into salvation. But in a greater sense, in a great, much greater way than Joshua did, he had to do with temporal life. Jesus deals with life eternal. Joshua was God's prophetic leader who stepped into Moses' shoes. Jesus fulfilled Moses' prophecy, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. He was the greater Moses. He was the greater Joshua. Joshua parted the Jordan River so that Israel could cross over that river into the promised land. Jesus walked on water and called others to come over to him. He was greater than Joshua. Joshua led God's people into the promised land, the inheritance God promised to Abraham. Jesus leads God's people into the promised land, his inheritance, his own inheritance, because we inherit what belongs to him. He is the one who's already in the promised land. It belongs to him, and he invites us to come in. 
Joshua's army pulled down earthly strongholds. Jesus' army pulls down spiritual strongholds, according to 2 Corinthians 10. Joshua's army was arrayed in earthly armor. Jesus' army is arrayed in spiritual armor. Joshua described himself as God's servant. Jesus described himself as a servant also. Joshua led God's people to rest in the promised land. Jesus' followers are led into rest in the new creation. And we could go on and on and on and on. When you go to the Old Testament, person after person, event after event, Jesus Christ is in them all. Do you see him? We must look for him. Give him time to set our hearts aflame by seeing him in Scripture. And so it is my intention in weeks to come to go to the Old Testament and to look for Jesus. You want to go with me? You want to take this walk? Now, because of the fact that we stop so much, it may take us a little longer than the seven miles to Emmaus. But we're going to take a journey. And we're going to allow time for the one who wrote the scriptures to speak to us. To expound himself. To reveal himself. And my prayer is going to be, Lord, we want to see you. We want to see Jesus. In fact, I'm going to put a little plaque here for myself. I don't have a plaque. It's too expensive, a black piece of paper. Sir, we would see Jesus. And we open the scriptures. To see Jesus, because he's there. The scriptures are they which speak of me. And we want to see him. Amen? So get ready to take this journey as we allow the risen Savior to set our hearts aflame. Let's bow in a word of prayer, please. Take a few moments and make it your prayer right now to God that he will cause you to seek for Jesus when you read Scripture, when you study Scripture. And pray that your eyes will not be beholding so you do not see him. But rather that the eyes of your understanding, the eyes of your heart might be open so that you will see him in Scripture. So that we might, be, we might be able to experience this burning heart for Jesus Christ. Pray that prayer right now. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, how we thank you for your word. And cause us to be reminded again and again. It is your word. It's you speaking to us. Oh, help us then to receive 
your word for what it really is. The word of God and not the word of man. Father, we pray, cause our hearts to burn every time we open the scriptures so that we might see Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen.